Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working side-by-side -side with leading scientists to better understand how complex data can be converted into innovative treatments. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about rehabilitation for cancer patients with occupational therapist Linda Greenus and physical therapist Scott Capoza. Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology and director of hematologic malignancies at the Yale Cancer Center. Why don't we start by talking about why cancer patients need physical and occupational therapy, like, you know, which are giving them chemotherapy or radiation. You know, isn't the focus really on their cancer? What's, you know, where do you guys play a role? So rehab can play a role anywhere in the trajectory of cancer care. We understand that the cancer trajectory starts from the moment of diagnosis. And so we as a rehab team want to be able to start working with patients even before they have surgery to try to get them stronger get going into surgery. And then after chemotherapy and after radiation therapy, the body's trying to heal. And there may be scar tissue that needs to be addressed. There might be cancer-related fatigue, which is actually the number one complaint of cancer patients that we see. There could be neuropathy, which is caused by the chemotherapy. There could be late-term effects from the radiation therapy. There could be lymphedema that develops six months after surgery and radiation, or it may develop six years later. And so to have the rehab team in place to have these checkpoints along the way to make sure that our patients are recovering to their full potential. Gotcha. And what, ab what about occupational therapy? Uh, we'll talk about lymphedema specifically in a little while. Okay. Occupational therapy and physical therapy in this aspect of working with cancer patients is very similar. As a matter of fact, the program that we are working with at Yale is um, a program to try to get the rehab started as soon as possible so that the patients can be followed and we can pick up whatever problems they may be having. Um, we basically want to assess, as an occupational therapist, when I see a patient, I am usually seeing them with a diagnosis of something, like for a breast cancer patient, with a diagnosis of shoulder stiffness or lymphedema or axillary cording. And so I will evaluate them for that first, and then I will go from there and assess any other problems that they may have. So I, there's, there's so many various areas that you work on to do with occupational and physical therapy. And in this area, we do a lot of very similar approaches. Gotcha. And for our listening audience, could, could you explain what axillary cording is? What's axillary? Axillary is in the armpit area. Okay. And it occurs sometimes after breast cancer surgery. After this cording thing. The cording after mastectomy. Um, no one is exactly sure why it occurs, but it seems to be what the latest I have heard is that the tissue is related to the 
lymphedema system, the lymphatics, and that a, a very, very hard cord forms mm -hmm. from sometimes from the breast area up through the armpit and sometimes down the length of the arm. And does that lead to stiffness or discomfort? Or? In both, yes. I, I it see. Can gotcha. be, it can make for a lot of problems with range of motion of the shoulder and the lateral trunk, the um, side bending of mm -hmm. a person. So, and it also can cause a lot of pain. It can cause some sensory problems as well if mm. it's pushing on a nerve. Sure. And, uh, and while we're at it, could you explain what lymphedema is? I can. <laughs> so lymphedema is a collection of fluid that is not your regular fluid throughout your body. Lymphatic, the lymphatic system has fluids that run through it, but it has protein-rich fluid, which is difficult to move. So Normally, our fluid just flows, and our lymphatic system has a built-in system that helps to move the fluid. Right. There's basically like special blood vessels, if you will, that carry the lymph, right? Correct. And they're not blood. They're lymph Correct. vessels. Yeah. And if lymphedema occurs in an arm or a leg after breast surgery or after, um, say, uterine surgery, where it affects the inguinal or the groin area lymph nodes, there can be swelling in the legs as well as, you know, we all think about the breast cancer and the arms that become swollen, but it can happen in the legs as well. And that kind of fluid is difficult to move. So lymphedema therapy includes a manual hands-on type of therapy. And it has, it's, you have to reroute the fluid. So it needs to have the manual treatment to reroute it. So it's kind of like if you're stuck in a in a traffic jam on a highway, and they you can't move, so they have to reroute you off of the highway. So with the lymphatic system, if there's a congested area, either from surgery or from a problem with vascular flow, then you have to find a way to reroute it. So you move it to different areas. So there's a very specific way that you move the lymphedema, and it has to be followed that way. And then after that, you want to try to maintain moving the fluid by doing compression wrapping and wearing compression stockings or a sleeve for the arm. Gotcha. Reminds me of uh, the Inspector Gadget kids TV show there used to be. I don't know if you're familiar with I that. remember that. Yeah. And if you were in a uh, traffic jam, you could say, go, go, gadget, uh, tall or something, right? right? And then <laughs> drive through and it's like, you, you like your lymph to do that too. Exactly. But it's not that easy. It's not that easy. And you can't just give, you know, water pills, diuretics like they do for swelling and heart failure. We give Lasix and things like that. That's what patients always no, want. No, it, it can actually interfere, the Lasix, because you're actually getting rid of the fluid, but you still have the proteins stuck right. in there, so the lymphatic system will draw in more fluid. Yeah, it's a terrible problem, I have to say, from patients. It is uh, I've a known. terrible problem. Yeah. And so many people don't know that there's actually treatment for it. Yeah, no, I, I get that. And uh, Scott, you've recently <clears throat> achieved something very special. It sounds special to me anyway, which is a specific board certification in, in oncology physical therapy. Is that right? Is that a specific boards for oncology physical therapy? That is correct, yes. 
the American Physical Therapy Association has had board certification, so like a specialization for other areas, including orthopedics, pediatrics, neurology. But in March of 2019 was the first time that the American Physical Therapy Association had a board certification for oncology. This has actually been in works for probably since the mid to late 80s to try to get this program launched, to try to get the certification launched. And it was pretty amazing to be a part of this group, um, the first group in the country to to take this exam and to actually pass this exam uh, and to also to prove that oncology needs to be on the same playing field as orthopedics, pediatrics, and neurology. And do you have to do special coursework, or how does that work? I studied a lot. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> I have to say that I spent most of my snow days studying, uh, but... It was uh, it was good. We had we had a good group of people around the country. We used each other as resources, and I would I'd like to say that when it comes to oncology rehab research, I wouldn't say that it's in its infancy, but it's definitely still in, in the in the toddler phase. Yeah. Uh, so we as physical therapists are realizing that we need to continue to move oncology research, rehab research forward so that we can come up with better standardization of care for all of our cancer patients. That's fantastic. So you're really in the inaugural class, if you will. Yes. How many others are there who are? 68. 68 in the first class uh, nationally. Correct. Wow, that's just like one and, and <laughs> one and a quarter per state. It's it's humbling and it's, um, it's amazing and it's a little scary all at the same time. Um, Still a little bit in shock, but it's it's exciting, and it, I'm excited to to have that certification, that board certification, to be able to bring that to Yale New Haven Hospital and to Smilo. That's great. Now, what is your experience? Um, you know, patient. Um, let's say not necessarily in the pre and post operative period, but some has physical or occupational therapy needs as assessed by their physician. And uh, do you find that patients are, are eager to participate or are they like so focused on their cancer that's all they can think about and, and this is like, I don't have time for that, I don't want to do exercise, just give me chemo, I'm really exhausted. What's, how, I mean, I'm sure patients are all over the board. There's no one size fits all. I get it. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Patients are all over. I think some patients realize, though, that in a time when they don't feel like they have a whole lot of control, that... Being able to exercise and be able to to go to rehab is actually one of the few things that you can have control over. And if there's a way for a cancer patient to try to get themselves stronger, whether it's before surgery, whether it's during the cancer treatments themselves, whether it's after the, the cancer treatments, that's something that the patient can take ownership of. And that's where it falls on the rehab staff, the rehab specialist, to be able to to identify those patients and be able to educate those patients to empower them so that they can move forward with their, their, uh, with their lives, really. Yeah, gotcha. I agree with Scott. And also, I have found with the patients that I have seen in general, that people are happy to be there and have another place that they can talk to an objective person mm. and share their concerns. And it's besides what we do physically, they may come in and 
and may say, oh, I'm just coming for this one assessment, that's it. And then you evaluate them and you talk to them and you educate them in different things that we can work together on. And I think a lot of times they find not just what we can work with them on physically, but a lot of our job is counseling as well, I although bet. I have no degree in counseling. Um, and also, you know, just I have cried with many patients and laughed with many patients. And I think to have another person they can just mm-hmm. talk to that isn't their family, that they can be able to feel better about themselves again and feel better about what's happening in their life and and move on and just find small successes. Yeah, and they may, I imagine, uh, feel more comfortable sharing some of their concerns uh, with you that they may not feel comfortable discussing with their physician or their care team, I imagine, sometimes. Well, I think we are fortunate in having a long period of time to work with them. For instance, for myself, if I am evaluating something, we have an hour to evaluate, at least currently. And if I am treating them, if they're an oncology or a lymphedema patient, we have 45 minutes to an hour. And if you see someone two or three times a week, you really develop a rapport. Sure. And there, I think there's a lot of education that goes on as well as what we can do physically. That's fantastic. Uh, this is really a, a fascinating subject uh, that I think we don't pay enough attention to, and we're going to want to pick up some of this in the second half. Right now, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about head and neck cancers. Although the percentage of oral and head and neck cancer patients in the United States is only about 5% of all diagnosed cancers, there are challenging side effects associated with these types of cancer and their treatment. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers, and in many cases, less radical surgeries are able to preserve nerves, arteries, and muscles in the neck, enabling patients to move, speak, breathe, and eat normally after surgery. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. We've been discussing rehabilitation after cancer. Scott uh, corrects me that, in fact, he's not uh, a doctor of physical therapy, which I've apparently announced him at, but he might as well be. I, 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 pre- I appreciate the promotion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sure. It's a, you know, that and a cup of coffee will cost you 25 cents or something like that, right? Um, let's talk a little bit about lymphedema. I think, uh, you know, many of us in uh, practice and probably many of our listeners know people or may have known people with really bad lymphedema, even of the arms and of the legs, and it can be so disabling. And how effective is the treatment? The treatment is very effective if there is good follow-through. There, I have seen many cancer patients who, with lymphedema either in their arm or their leg who have followed through after the manual lymph... Well, so the treatment includes, I should explain, lymphedema treatment includes manual lymphatic drainage, which is the hands-on gentle massage that's done in the appropriate fashion, moving in the, everything in the right direction. After 
that part is done, then I always tell the patient they should actually urinate a lot that day and the next day probably, and that's how the fluid leaves the body because sometimes people have no idea how where does the fluid go. And so that is the first part. The second part of the lymphedema therapy is to then try to maintain that loss of fluid through compression wrapping, which we do either of the leg or the arm. And that involves a lot of commitment on the patient's part because you're wrapping, you're putting about five layers of wrap on the body. But you do it in a specific fashion and they remove it 24 to 48 hours later, depending on when they can get back in the clinic. Not everyone can come back the next day or so then we remove it two days later. And then that will have maintained their fluid loss from the treatment. And then what you're gearing to is to then get them fitted with the right compression stocking for their leg or sleeve for their arm. These aren't over-the-counter things you get at the right No, and they need to be fitted by a professional who does that. Some therapists do it. I personally do not. I refer to other people who have been doing it 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. And um, so then we make the recommendation to the fitter, and then the fitter will take care of that, and then the patient will get their garment. Now, also part of what we do is teach the patient how to self-manually control their own fluid. So if a patient is very good about follow-through with the self-manual treatment and exercises, which are also very important to perform, we don't bombard them with exercises, but at least to have a few that they follow through on every day. Um, It can greatly help maintain the loss of fluid. But it has to be a team approach Mm -hmm. between the therapist and patient, and they have to really want to do it and really have the means to do it. Because not all people have the ability to perform the manual drainage on themselves. And it's obviously not as involved as when the therapist does it, but we give them a handout and we teach them how to do it. And we also will teach people how to wrap if they can do it. But a lot of times people can't do that. So with the follow-through, people do tremendously well. I, I had a woman who had lymphedema in her legs, one leg specifically, and she had lost 700 milliliters of fluid in her leg, which is about three cups of fluid. Mm-hmm. And she had come in, she couldn't wear shoes. She was wearing oversized slippers or a cast shoe because that's the only thing that fit on her feet. And when she left, she was wearing regular sneakers. Mm. So those kind of successes are awesome. And many people don't have that severe of fluid. They have some and it gets removed and then they wear their garments and they're very successful. But it does have to be teamwork. Mm-hmm. And is it important to get this started very early or can you be successful even with the people with very advanced lymphedema? You can be successful with the advanced lymphedema, but it does take longer. Yeah, I can imagine. I also can imagine, particularly if you have lymphedema of the arm on your dominant side, if, say, if you're right-handed, you know, it must be hard to do the massage by yourself one-handed in the first place, but especially if it's your, 
your weaker arm, I can imagine. It's, it's very difficult. Plus, if people also have any chemo-induced peripheral neuropathy, sure. they could have problems with their pinch and their grip strength and not being able to feel as well. Mm. So there is that's another whole component. So um, we do actually do some treatments for that as well, which um, is basically desensitizing. Mm-hmm. There isn't a whole lot of evidence out there about it, but there are some things like desensitizing using a big bin full of rice, which people can do at home, and they can just work through it with their hand and Mm. just sit there with it for 10 minutes watching TV or something at home. Or they could put it for their feet because a lot of people have the problem in their feet as well. And I actually have a patient who told me that if she does it 10 minutes every night, she doesn't have as much pain and um, tingling in her feet. That's very cool. I haven't had a lot of people tell me that. Yeah. So I haven't done a study right. on it. But, but it's um, worth a try. It's yes, pretty cheap. And it's a pretty easy thing for someone to carry over at home. Yeah, I guess so. Do you ever involve uh, family members or support members to do the massage? Is that Often. Yeah. Often. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, some people have wonderful families sure, who can does. come in. Some people have no family. And some people have family who are kind of afraid. Sure. But, yes, we definitely try to involve family. Yeah, great. Scott, one of the things that I see, um, you know, I I treat leukemia patients and, uh, you know, many of them are cured, which is really wonderful. And, you know, either during their chemotherapy or they've been in the hospital for a couple of months of intensive chemotherapy and now they're still getting chemo but it's less or maybe they finished everything or they've had a stem cell transplant, they finished everything. and, And then they have this kind of like, you know, well, not only they talk about a lot of people talk about chemo brain, which I'm sure you guys hear about, but also like just this fatigue that they can't shake, and they're you know motivated people, and you know we worry about their psychological state. Could there be an underlying depression? They've been through this hugely traumatic thing, and I think sometimes there is. But is there anything physical therapy can do for like this? I just can't get off the couch. Absolutely, and and as I was referring to earlier, this cancer-related fatigue is probably the number one physical complaint that just about all cancer survivors will experience at some point during their cancer treatments or into long-term survivorship. And and your patient population is the perfect example of that. And for for us as rehab professionals, we can work with those patients. And really, as part of the evaluation, we need to take a detailed history as to what that patient was doing prior to their sure. treatment. And then we need to meet them where they are at that moment. And then we can come up with a comprehensive plan to get them stronger and to move them forward. I will tell patients that Rome was not built in a day. And so you're right, as, as the body is trying to heal and trying to recover from the, from the stresses of cancer treatment, it has to be a progressive buildup, and that's where you need a rehab professional to supervise that and make sure that the patient isn't doing too little and, and also not doing too much to kind of trigger that fatigue because then, then they're shot for the next two or three days, and that's not what you want. You want something that's going to be kind of a low dose and more consistency and kind of building on that to get that patient stronger. It reminds me of the joke, Doctor, will I play the piano again? Or I never played the piano before. It's an old, <laughs> old kind of a Borscht Belt joke. Uh, so, you know, one thing that I also see uh, along those lines, uh, 
more often in male people, but not exclusively people who have, uh, you know, were gym rats and, you know, feel very confident in the gym, weightlifters, and they kind of want to like just jump in and, and do it themselves. And, uh, you know, they know their way around the gym. So part of me says, well, you know, take it slow and take it light. But should those patients really be supervised, do you think? I think so, because, again, if, if they are experiencing something like peripheral neuropathy, like Linda was talking about, if they have it in their feet, that becomes a balance issue. Sure. And so to take the strategies from the occupational therapist, this, the desensitization, and then combine it with balance training that a physical therapist can do, you put all that together, then it's going to be safer for that person to go back to the gym. Or if again, if they have uh, the peripheral neuropathy in their hands, are they going to be able to grip the weights? Mm -hmm. And so that's where the, the rehab professional comes in to make sure that we're addressing all of those concerns. And then, yes, I, I feel that these patients need to be followed kind of systematically, at least in the short term. And then once they have built up their strength and they've kind of getting their confidence back, then we can say, okay, then, you know, you can go back out into the community. But we should always be available at various checkpoints throughout the, their long-term survivorship in case anything does ever change. And we know never to trust a weightlifting lunkhead to take it easy the first time, right? Ab absolutely. <laughs> yes. No offense I, to all you lunkheads out there. Yes. Well, <laughs> Been and, that way myself once in a while. Yes. And, you know, we, we definitely do not use the no pain, no gain uh, principle. So, again, we, we like to do this progressively and, and um, building on itself. Agreed. I'd like to... Turn the subject in our last few minutes to something that we struggle with uh, as providers, uh, which is the role of rehab in uh, later care, sort of getting towards end-of-life care. We have patients who are in the hospital. There's always the question of, you know, even though we're not in a curative mode, uh, will they benefit from inpatient rehab or outpatient rehab? Is it a good use of resources? What is the thinking nowadays in either occupational therapy or physical therapy? Rehab can be a part of a cancer patient's trajectory at any point, and that can include end-of-life hospice care, even if it's something as simple as um, uh, doing a home visit, you know, for, for certain OTs or PTs to be able to go to the home and to make sure that that home is accessible for that patient. Something as simple as making sure there's no throw rugs so the patient doesn't trip mm. or to make sure that the bathroom has been adapted with grab bars to make it safer for that patient to transfer in and out of the shower. So there's always going to be uh, a role for occupational therapy and physical therapy whenever that may be for the cancer patient. Hmm. I agree. Also, sometimes you can help them find better positioning for sleep, for sitting. You know, you can, as if you go into the home or even if they come to your facility or if they're an inpatient, just finding things, other adaptive aids that might make things easier for them around the house. Mm -hmm. And are you able to find ways to make them, make patients, help patients uh maintain more sense of control and independence? I, I guess it depends on the disabilities. Yes, it depends on where they're at in their, their, um, their course of their cancer. Sure. But if they are at home and they do still want to do certain things around the house, whether it's cooking a meal or 
or just they want to do the laundry, who who knows why, but sometimes people, it just makes them feel better that they're sure. participating. So there are, there are different adaptive aids that can help with opening jars and for opening pill containers and, you know, things to help with cooking that will make like a larger handle if they can't hold on to something that's smaller. Mm. So it just depends on the person and what their particular goals are. Linda Greenus and Scott Capoza are physical therapists specializing in oncology. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.